the other day we were on a, I was on a Zoom with Joe and my husband had put on like Bert and Ernie eyebrows on me as like a Zoom filter. And I didn't, and it was 8.30 in the morning and I like had that in my coffee. And I was just like, holy my eyebrows look whack. Like what is happening? I was like, I'm going to have to go like take off some makeup after this meeting. But it's because I had an insane eyebrow filter on during our meeting. And he's so nice. He didn't say anything. And I was so embarrassed. And I haven't told Joe about this yet. I hadn't had that opportunity until now. They were huge. Haley, I hate to admit this, but that is our opening. So welcome to the Culture Pod. everybody and welcome back to The Human Element, Kara's podcast focused on finding ways to inject humanity and insight into modern marketing. Today, I'm here with our very own Haley Poss, CSO at Kara US. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back and happy to be with Chelsea. Flying solo, couldn't go alone, so I'm here. Yeah, no, you're definitely co-hosting this one with me. Um, And then our two amazing guests with us today are Joe Anthony, Chief Hero at Hero Collective, and Alexis Torado head of multicultural branded at BuzzFeed. Uh, before we dive into the pod, let's kind of give our um, our listeners a little bit more around the roles that you're currently in and how you got here in the first place. Yeah, so my name is Alexis and I am the head of multicultural branded at BuzzFeed. I started at BuzzFeed in 2017 and I led Better Like, which is our Latinx brand from 2017 to 2020. And I recently received a promotion to really delve deeper into the multicultural story on the branded side. And prior to BuzzFeed, I launched Flama, which was also Latinx millennial site for Univision. I've worked at MTV. I've worked for Alicia Keys and Martha Stewart. So I've been, I look young, but I've been in media for like at least 15 years. So that is how I am here now. And it's an honor to be here with y'all today. Thank you. It's the hair that keeps you looking young (laughs) and your face. (laughs) And your overall positive attitude. Yeah. All of the above. Thank you. <laughs> Should I go yeah, next? Go. Or, uh, go next. All, right. All right. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm Joe Anthony. I'm the founder and chief hero at Hero Collective. We are a digital first creative studio based in Brooklyn, USA. We're about six years old and our focus is really to help brands become heroes. I mean, I know that sounds a little cheesy, but like in this day and age where brands have to be mean more than the products they sell, we really work hard in helping brands like architect their cultural narrative in a way where they can stay in the cultural conversation. I think that's the number one KPI right now that all brands are competing for. It's like, how do we stay relevant? How do we stay in the cultural conversation? You know, a lot of these conversations are happening in social environments. What's the evolution of community? What's the evolution of advertising? You know, so we're really on the cutting edge of really helping brands figure out how to use storytelling, how to use culture to really expand their narrative to be relevant, right? And this passion for me to really kind of help brands or be a cultural whisperer, so to speak, really just extends back to me being a public school kid from Queens, New York, who grew up in humble beginnings, who, you know, played a little ball, went to college, came back with uh, big entrepreneurial dreams. I was, I'm a Gen Xer. So for those who who know Gen Xers, we were kind of douchebags, right? Like we grew up watching like shows like Wall Street and Miami Vice and like our, you know, success for us was getting paid, right? You know, because, you know, our, our parents were immigrants, 
They were boomers. And they were like, we sacrificed everything so that you can go out in the world and realize the American dream that we've sacrificed so much for you to be able to realize. Get that money, right? honey. Get that money, right? So that's what it was about, right? You better come back with more than you went out with, right? Or like, what was all this sacrifice worth? So, you know, I prescribe to that mentality. And I think, you know, coming out of the housing crisis, I learned a lot from millennials, man. They really just inspired me to hit the reset button and understand that, you know, the pursuit of wealth really had to be kind of transition to the pursuit of meaning, right? And like the world's on fire, it's all screwed up. And like, if we don't start playing a role in trying to create the meaningful change we need to make it better, then that's what marketing really needs to be. That's what we need to kind of look at success through the prism of of kind of the impact we make now. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm a public school kid. I'm a career entrepreneur. You know, I had one job out of college. I worked for the New York Times for two years. And then I started consulting for brands like Hush Puppies and Tommy Hilfiger. And, you know, when everybody was trying to figure out how these small upstart brands were like, gaining scale and notoriety. I was running around putting shiny jackets on P. Diddy and doing in-store events with Destiny's Child. And then I turned that into a multi-million dollar agency by the time I was 30 and have been working with brands just ever since and really trying to help them understand how to kind of tap into culture as a way to kind of build relevance. So anyway, sorry to be long-winded. Joe, I need to work on my bio. My bio is looking pretty weak against this. <laughs> Joe well, likes to uh, talk, I I... but that's one of my favorite qualities <laughs> about you. <laughs> yeah, Joe's got a hell of a bio. He's got about, I'm my favorite part of your bio is shiny jackets on P. Diddy. That was my main takeaway. After you said that, I was just imagining you chasing him with a shiny jacket along the streets of New York. Oh, no, it's funny. Like, I, I was backstage at the Puff Daddy and the family, and he had the, the bad boy bad tour. We were backstage boy. at Madison Square Garden, and it was it was uh, uh, oh, that was that was amazing. Like, uh, but like we we were backstage. I'm there with like it was surreal. Like you're backstage with like Wyclef and like Destiny's Child when they were together, and like uh, P Diddy and Mace and Little Kim and. I feel like I was a part of the genesis of a lot of what was going on in kind of pop culture in the late 90s. And uh, seeing how trends evolve is like some of the most uh, firsthand valuable experience that you can have. All right. So we're going to wrap up the pod now. That was it. Yeah, that was it. That's good. Uh, Chelsea, in case you want my bio, I've got it down. Oh, <laughs> I am basically now just the, the physical embodiment of Kara. <laughs> which is why I got promoted to chief strategy officer. Hey, that deserves an applause. We are happy yeah. that you're here and you deserve that promotion, Haley. So a week ago, we, we hosted our first cultural media week. Haley, do you mind giving our audience a little bit of insight on what that mission of the event was and kind of what took place that entire week for us? First of all, this was probably the best thing I've ever done in my entire career. I had the best time and... Being able to bring in people who are so interesting just to hear them talk about what they do and what they love around the topics of like identity and culture was career highlight of mine. But kind of the genesis of this idea and mission was to really continue our team's education around designing for people, which is Kara's brand purpose and kind of way of you know living our agency lives every day. The brands that we work with are cultural leaders. So a key part of what we do day in and day out for our clients is to ensure 
that they're on the forefront of culture. And given all the changes over the past year, we decided we need to take a step back to really just understand how significantly the world, people, and media have changed and to identify how brands can better support the people who are creating and consuming culture. So not to sound too philosophical, but what does culture mean to you? I would say the big thing for how I see culture is it's really an expression of identity and that when culture is at its best, it enriches identity and experiences. It's the thing that makes life worth living. I'll piggyback on that. And I think it's always good to start out with like what culture is not, right? And I, and I think that more oftentimes it is this kind of, you know, brands try to make it synonymous with like racial ethnicity. And obviously that's a big part of what drives popular culture, but it's not necessarily what culture is exclusively, right? Culture isn't necessarily a term to replace Black African-American or urban, right? It is how we self-identify, right? There's cultural expressions that are endemic to every racial group, but then every kind of heterogeneous society that is trying to develop one sensibility or one kind of identity. And I think the term culture comes up so much in the context of marketing with respect to the U.S. population is because we are constantly trying to figure out what our cultural identity is as a collective society, because it is so fragmented in so many variety of of different multicultural, ethnic, racial subgroups. Uh, But I think the beauty of culture is where we start seeing the, you know, the individual byproducts or contributions of each one of those groups start to affect the masses, right? And so we're starting to create a broader way that we identify as one collective culture, right? And that's when we hear the terms pop culture, things becoming mainstream. But a lot of the genesis stories of those big mass cultural movements start from specific subgroups within the diversity that exists in our in our country so it's not black it's not necessarily something that means ethnic alone it's really how you self-identify and how you express yourself and the values and the principles that you live by i love that i feel like for me and just working on better like and working closely with cocoa butter which is our black excellence brand at buzzfeed culture is like, you know, it basically means like family language, being trendsetters, you know, being the trailblazers, like being in on the inside joke. Like Joe and I grew up with that plastic covered sofa at Abuela's house, you know, we both had the pink lotion. And I think culture is really sacred. You know, I think if you are a person of color, if you're BIPOC, it is a very sacred thing. And you do feel some type of way when someone tries to appropriate it or they don't give credit where it's due. You know, I think a perfect example of that is that Madison Ray, TikTok dancer turned actress, was on the Jimmy Fallon show a few days ago. And she did, I think, 10 TikTok dances. And people were upset because they didn't credit the Black creators behind the original TikTok dances. And those Black creators are part of the culture. They're the ones that created these dance moves. So for me, culture is really part of your identity. You know, I have orange hair. That is part of my culture. You know, I was inspired by Fifth Element, you know, which is part of pop culture. So it is really ingrained. It's very sacred. And um, it's something that you should be proud of, but also protect. And as cultural experts that brands really turn to to guide them, through navigating pop culture or subcultures. How do you stay up to the relevant trends, the cultural trends, the movements? What, you know, do you have any secret sauce to that? 
I, I think for me, I, I, when I was talking earlier about this concept of kind of being of the culture, right? I think everyone in this society has kind of the responsibility of being cultural anthropologists and being curious, right? And stepping outside of their kind of monolithic lives and really kind of disrupting that by engaging the diversity that exists around us, you know, beyond just what we are able to see and feed from the comforts of our armchairs, right? Like we really need to go out there and explore, engage, connect, touch, taste. I mean, culture is such a sensory thing that if you don't really engage it with all your senses, you can't really truly appreciate what it's about, right? And so there's this idea of like being a cultural explorer and going out there and making yourself uncomfortable. But then there's this idea of also cultural historian, right? And I think there are things that people can do to educate themselves on the origin of culture and how it kind of evolves. Because I think oftentimes there is just an interest on jumping on the bandwagon once things become popular versus really generating an appreciation for all of what kind of went into that culture becoming what we are now able to enjoy by pressing play on a Spotify, you know, app, right? And I, and I think that's what's going to make you appreciate it a lot more like when we start thinking about the origins of, of hip hop culture, the origins of reggaeton or the origins of, you know, certain food cultures that we enjoy and that we take for granted every day. You know, these things are born from struggle. They are born from, you know, tension in society that sometimes, you know, results in the development of something truly beautiful. And the more and more that we engage in its historical kind of origin story is the more that we, we develop a deeper connection to, to that and to the people in which we're responsible for generating that, that cultural trend, right? So really kind of get out there. Don't just like read periodicals. Like you really have to like Anthony Bourdain it a little bit, you know? The beautiful thing about this country is there's all these cultural pods that exist. That, like, I grew up in Queens, which is the like, most diverse county in America. Like, you know, I grew up on Greek food and then Arabic food and Indian food and Korean food. Like, you could walk two blocks and literally be in the mix of a cultural concentration of ethnic everything, right? So, like, you know, there is so much that you can explore in the immediate you know, areas around you, you have to, you have to embrace that. I love everything you said and plus one and I'm from the Bronx and I grew up in Jersey, but I was born in the Bronx. So it's like living in New York, it's like a cultural renaissance. You open your door and it's so amazing. I will say, and I'm speaking from a millennial point of view that I think the feed is really important. And I think that, you know, working at BuzzFeed, we spend hours on TikTok. We spend, like, TikTok and Twitter are the places where the trends start. And then Instagram and Facebook is where they catch on to them later. But I think it is important to stay on top of everything so you can know which brands people are gravitating towards. Like there was an, like a NYX lipstick that went viral on TikTok that people love. Obviously, Telfar is a very beloved brand on the internet and on the streets. I think Instagram is really interesting. Diet Prada is a very inter interesting account for what's going on in the fashion world and calling in or calling people out who are problematic. But I think it's also just important to talk to the right people, you know, like I'm always talking to my Gen Z cousins and seeing what they're interested in. You know, I'm always just so curious as a millennial myself. And then just talking to people 
that you trust that are in the know, you know, like asking them like Curly at BuzzFeed. He's one of Beto Lake's biggest personalities. He's Salvi. He's queer. He's born and raised in LA. He's a huge personality. He has close to 400K fans on Instagram. He's authentically himself. So I'll talk to him and he's a big fashion person. So we'll talk about fashion and who we think is like, you know, we're really excited about who we're not excited about. So I think it's also talking to the people in the know. It's looking at the feed, seeing what the feed is saying, social media. And yeah, and it's like just, you know, talking to the experts like Joe and I. (laughs) And exploring, like Joe said, get out of your house, get off the sofa for sure as well. I agree. I definitely think the feed is the, the the place in which, you know, we can stay up on trend, right? I guess one of the things, or from a, a Gen Xer's perspective, talking to a millennial who geeks out on culture. So you're, you're a little different than those who just kind of like jump on a trend. But like, I know millennials that don't know what Wu Tang was. Oh, God. <laughs> that don't know, like, you know, who couldn't mouth a Biggie Smalls lyric. Like, so it's kind of like the thing that drives me a little nuts is like, you know, the fact that certain individuals won't do the work. Right. You know, and sometimes the digital aspect of and, and the immediacy that it, it presents makes them feel that they don't have to do the work, right? And I think that's not the the precedent I, I, I want to set with brands as well. Is think that like culture is this immediate thing that is just there for instant gratification. Let me just jump on something versus doing the work and understanding the origin of some of this stuff so you can have a better appreciation for the, the, those kind of behavioral dynamics that really are important to help shape a communication strategy or for brands to understand where they really should play, right? Sometimes if we get too caught up on just, you know, the quick kind of snackable, you know, solution, we lose sight of where the real payoff comes in, which is like those cultural journeys that really inform us and and create that deeper connection to to the culture. As someone who grew up in the opposite of both of the areas, (laughs) I I grew up in a small town in Michigan on a farm. There were animals. That was my culture. So you didn't walk out your door and just got hit with culture? No, no. It was lacking. I just have to echo. It's a, there's a reason, like we have jobs that are about culture. It is work and you have to bring an appreciation and an open-mindedness that not everybody has to your point, Joe. Like you really have to understand, do the work and be supportive of culture. You can't just take, if you do take, how are you giving back in some way or another? That could be a like. That could be financially, that could be through the work that we do and how we talk to brands, but that value exchange needs to be there if you are a taker of culture, someone who's enjoying it. So the big things that are like that appreciation, that open mind and, and the support so that people can keep doing the great work that they're doing. Amazing. Alexis, we got to start a new hashtag, hashtag farm life, and we're going to turn <laughs> that into the next hot cultural movement hashtag right fat now. Farm. And, get people, <laughs> and get them like TikTok, you know, Dancing in the barn type. We gotta, we gotta make that hot. There was cottage core, <laughs> farm core is the next thing. It probably already has been. I probably just missed that one. Let's dive into a little bit more around brand work and brand strategy. So some of these larger clients, you know, it's easy to quickly become a one-off initiative and feel like a one-off initiative to culture. So how do you create those long-term roads? Like, yes, open-mindedness. Yes, there's a lot of soft skills around this to staying aware, but what are some more tangible, tactical things that brands really need to do to make sure they maintain that long-term initiative? Yeah, I will quote Joe actually from Cultural Media Week and his presentation where he was talking about 
supporting culture is an investment. It's like how you think about any brand investment. It's something that is not a one-off. It's not about attaching yourself to culture. It's not about borrowing equity. It's about supporting people and their identities and their communities and their culture over time. And that will reward you as a brand if you come at it with that sort of mindset. A hundred percent, you know, and just, just building off of that, you know, you got to know what your value prop is and what you bring to the cultural conversation. And I think there are so many brands that are like culturally agnostic, you know, I'm going to be what the market needs for me to be at the moment in which they need it. Right. And I think that that's really where we start to see brands be inauthentic to, you know, themselves and that kind of like, they don't really understand that the consumer is smarter than that and can pick up on that lack of authenticity. So like when you see a brand like Patagonia really lean into environmental activism and that's their identity, that's how they want to make a cultural contribution. Everything that they do revolves around that equity, right? So once you really understand what your cultural superpower is, what we call that our agency and like, then it's right, you build equity around that and that creates the pull strategy, right? Usually those equities are still very culturally relevant. Sustainability, obviously, is a huge cultural thing right now that Patagonia is leaning into, right? Again, Dove is about body positivity and, you know, just dispelling certain stereotypes around beauty. That's their equity. They're going to continue to invest in that narrative, right? Nike wants to turn everyone into an athlete, right? So they're going to democratize the concept of making this kind concept of being your best athletic self, the most accessible to everyone possible, you know? So as you start thinking about entering into culture, it's really first understanding what it is you can offer and how you add value to the cultural conversation that's endemic to what your brand already does well, right? So I think that's really important versus like, I'm just going to kind of go where the cultural wind blows. I would also say that when a brand approaches us with like a one-off project, it feels like brands who post the black square and move on, you know, and we really encourage them to think long-term, to think about what is a one-year plan look like? What does a two-year plan look like? And like Joe said, you know, Dove has been intersectional since day one. Patagonia has been about the environment. It's been part of their DNA. Target has had multicultural ads for years now. So these are brands that aren't scrambling to figure out what that is, but we really push the brands to think about the long-term plan and to not really pander to the BIPOC community. And I think that's really important. And also, it's really important, and I know Joe will agree with me on this, is that like when you hire people to work on the multicultural content, make sure that they really know culture and community very well. Just because, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm also Salvi, and I grew up in this culture but there are some people in my community who maybe don't really know the Latinx culture that well, which is fine. You know, everyone's on their own journey. But Joe and I like know our cultures very well and we can help brands in that very deep and authentic way. And I think a lot of times brands will be like, oh, here's a one-off project. Let me just hire a random Latina from LinkedIn, you know, and this Latina might not be well-versed with like Latinidad throughout, you know, there's 20, at least 21 countries and islands, you know, we're not a monolith, not all Latinos look like me, there are Black Latinos, Asian Latinos, non-binary Latinos. So I think it's really important also to think of a long-term plan and hire the right people who deeply understand the community and the culture in an authentic way and have been doing this work for a minute. I think that's also very important because people be like, hire a Latino to do this ad. And it's like, well, hire a Latino who knows the community and the culture very well and deeply to do this ad. 
That's a great point. And I love that. You mentioned community. How has the role of community shifted in the past 18 months? For me, it's been about intersectionality. You know, I think finally, like, Latinos are realizing, hello, we have Black Latinos, we have Afro-Latinos, you know. When I would go to Black Lives Matter, you know, protests five years ago, there wasn't that many people in my community or the Asian community. And now I'm seeing it being more intersectional. I just went to a Stop Asian Hate protest a month ago, and I was really happy to see so many different people from different walks of life. And I think the community and different communities are understanding the importance of that intersectionality, importance of being allies to our trans brothers and sisters. Just that like, it's not just about your own community, it's about all the communities. And what are you doing to make sure that you're, you know, we're all helping each other out and we're all lifting each other up and, you know, we're keeping each other safe as well. That's a great point. I'll just say what I've been noticing a lot is what we're calling the rise of immediacy right, and the need for more immediacy, right? So what you've seen with a lot of these social platforms and how they've evolved is like the utilization of all of their live tools have, you know, exploded, right? And that's because people want immediate interactions that allow them to vent, allow them to find console, to allow them to like, you know, voice their opinions around the myriad of issues that are happening right now that kind of affect us all in society. So you're seeing even the features on social where you're, you know, sharing just a static image to sharing a video or a slideshow to sharing a pre-recorded image to now wanting to dive into live discussion. Right. And so you're going to continue to see, you know, you got, you know, Twitter now working on a clubhouse rip off. You have Facebook working on a clubhouse <laughs> rip off. So like Zoom is going to become a consumer facing. It already is, but they're already you know, working on plans on becoming a more consumer facing application with a variety of different, you know, features that create this kind of more interconnected world that can serve all of our lifestyle needs. Uh, you're seeing heavy investments into content and commerce. I think the rise of influencers have been, uh, you know, just exponentially increasing in relevance and necessity. You know, people are looking for the cheat code. Like people are looking for guidance right now. There's a lot of people who are lost coming out of this pandemic, trying to figure out how they're going to get their lives back on track. And so dialogue community is not just this role of just showing you a picture of my, you know, you know, the fact that I'm, I'm standing in line right now at, at Whole Foods, you know, it's more like I need to dive into substance, right? I need to dive into substantive conversations. And I think it's refreshing to see this massive shift in social from becoming like a platform that's really known for like just immediate and instant gratification and value metrics to, you know, consumers wanting to have a value exchange, Right. And I think that that gives me hope that social is going to pivot and community is going to pivot to become more of a place where meaningful interactions can happen. So, you know, the rise of immediacy is the biggest thing that I'm seeing. I think there's two really interesting things that you mentioned. One is that everyone's kind of talking about this pandemic time is like people are slowing down. They're relaxing. They're, you know, there's nothing to do. But in reality, because we've shifted so digital, there has been this rise in immediacy and what people expect in terms of content, wait times. I can get groceries delivered to my door within an hour. I can get a prescription delivered to my door within an hour. It just really has exacerbated 
people's impatience for experiences. And I think that is something that brands need to think about. And there is a little bit of that disconnect between that that slowdown and rising immediacy. And I think when it comes to community, especially online community, people are looking for utility. Like there's a reason why people are going to community-based platforms and what they're going to there for and why. So either it fulfills an aspect of my identity that I don't get in my like maybe smaller physical community. People are traveling a little bit less now. And although that will definitely come back with a vengeance we're expecting, but also it, it could be a support system of like, I'm going through this hard thing and trying to seek out help, um, help and guidance. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why people are seeking out identity. I think they'll probably start, you know, maybe going away from the bigger platforms for that aspect of community, which is why they, you know, started in the first place. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens just to the social scene online and and how community plays into that over the next year. There's, you know, community, a successful community is collaboration and allyship and diverse thinking. And in our industry, that kind of looks like partnership sometimes. So what is the most successful partnership look like to you? And on top of that, like, what's your favorite brand brief you've ever gotten where you're like, yes, this makes sense to actually fitting into culture? This is where, like, I'm going to revert to y'all because y'all probably get better briefs than me. Man, my briefs are whack <laughs> compared to all the briefs y'all get. You know, I mean, I, I don't put it. <laughs> this is like the number one thing everyone likes to complain about between Alexis, Joe, and myself. I think everyone for all of time has been like, I've never gotten a good brief. Well, yeah, I mean, I've gotten a couple over the last, you know, this this one project I just worked on with Johnson and Johnson and Band-Aid was incredible. You know, and I've had my share, a handful of briefs that make sense. So for you, Joe, what do brands need to do better in this space? Like, why are we, what are we missing the mark on? One, I, I think, you know, big brands are just so slow to move. The bureaucracy, the politics that just really impact their ability to move in a way. And then they're complaining of why, you know, they're not nimble and DTC brands are killing them and whatnot. And they're just so slow to move. And so that's one. Two, they're constantly behaving from like a fear-based motivation. And like, you know, you cannot win in this rapidly changing digital landscape with a fear-based mentality. Like you just can't. Right. A quarterly economics uh, way of thinking, you know, versus a growth mindset. Right. You know, we're now in a new industrial revolution and you have to be growth driven. Right. That means you can't think about how much X product you're going to sell within the next three months. or You may lose your job once you report your quarterly earnings at the end of the quarter and you don't hit your sales numbers. Right. Like the reality is brands need to start thinking with a broader timeline in mind and and start broadening what success means, right? So when you start thinking about an acquisition funnel, you have targeting and then at the end of it, you have like your transaction. What we tell brands is you need to own the middle, right? The middle is the hardest place to own, right? Because that's where conversations happening. That's where communities are being built. That's where you develop relationships. And most brands have no idea on how to navigate that middle, right? But in order to navigate that middle, you have to change kind of your cultural approach to your business, right? And that is the hardest thing for legacy brands to do, which is why we're seeing so many of them 
constantly playing catch up versus leading, right? So I think probably the biggest issue is trying to get them to, you know, not be afraid, get out of their own way and lead. They have the ability and the financial capabilities to lead in most of these segments, but they're just not doing it for some reason. I love that. I also think that you know, brands are very hesitant to take a risk and they just need someone on their team that knows how to read the room. You know, I think that's so important to understand the cultural landscape. For example, guests just tried to rip off the Telfar bag, which is a big no-no. You know, Telfar, again, is a huge brand of the community and streetwear and of the internet. And immediately guests apologize and they were like, oh, we didn't know. I think it's really important that you have someone on your team that knows how to read the room. You know, at BuzzFeed, specifically when I was on the creative side with Better Like, there would be some videos where it didn't feel good, you know, or maybe it was missing the mark and we decided not to publish it because it could have come off as like insensitive. But there's no reason to be afraid. You're going to make mistakes, but just learn how to read the room, learn how to understand your audience really well and just go with your gut on that, you know? But you need someone on your team that knows how to read the room. And I think a lot of fashion brands, just going back to them, miss the mark on that. Chelsea, also just for your original question about a successful partnership, you know, I can talk about like metrics and like over delivery of campaigns and partnerships. But like, I think for me, a success is when it's something that you're really proud to talk about, like within the BuzzFeed office or like to your family and friends. And one of the things that we did at BuzzFeed last year that was really cool was we've got to work on the Biden-Harris campaign. Tasty and Beto like did four videos for them. And to me, that that's changing the culture. That is like making history. It was a labor of love. We we're so excited. We saw an incredible result. We, we did change minds. And there's like stats to back that up. And it was something that we still talk about to this day. It's something that we know that we helped to move the needle with this election. And I'm just really proud that we were a part of that campaign and part of that history. Haley, anything? I would say the only other thing is if you don't feel good about the brief, either as an agency giving a brief to a publisher, as a brand giving a brief to an agency, just at, but like, how can we make this brief stronger? What ideas do you have? And then just have, we, like, we've really changed the way that we started working at Kara, where it's much more about collaboration with our clients and with our partners as well. We have a lot of mini check-ins. It's just more of an ongoing conversation. I think the days of the, you know, the big ta-da, like, here is your strategy. Those days are are over. Like, it's meant to be something that we create together in partnership. And you're going to get the best of everyone. Think about how many more brains you have working on on defining the problem, which you should fall in love with the problem just as much as you fall in love with the solution. And I think a lot of times we're in the rush for the solution and we're, we don't have the right problem defined. Said as a strategist, of course, I'm saying that. In addition to what, what they mentioned, I think we the way of working in the future will be much more collaborative. And I'm really excited about that. So I have two final questions and then we'll get to the lightning round. Our nation is continually going through extremely unsettling times. And in the midst of it all, what gives you the most reason for hope? Just the unwavering authenticity of young people. I just feel that, you know, this world is going to be saved by just the unwavering commitment of young people and their unwillingness to accept bullshit. They don't self-identify the way that, again, my generation did. We, we were more willing to compromise because we were so scared to lose. 
this is a generation that's already, you know, were born into loss. Like they were born into a losing situation, right? So it's kind of like, what else are you going to do to me, right? You know, their principles and their values and beliefs are the things that have become kind of like non-negotiable. And I love that about this generation. I have a 15-year-old son who like, to me, like he doesn't care about, like I grew up, wanting to dress fly and step out with the, the dope new sneakers. Like, he doesn't give a shit about that, you know? He really just wants to make a contribution in some meaningful way. And, like, I, I just really am inspired by the commitment our young people have, and uh, I'm hopeful uh, that they continue to uh, exhibit those principles that are going to lead our world into, you know, a better position. It's a great answer. I might be a 15-year-old boy, though, because I also don't give a shit about what I wear when I step out of the house. So now I'm questioning everything about myself to the point that my husband's like, please change your sweatpants. Like, it's it's time. The neighbors are now noticing. Alexis? I agree. I think Gen Z is changing the world. And I think that, you know, people can talk about cancel culture and being politically incorrect, but I think we're holding brands accountable to be ethical, to be mindful, to be sustainable. And we want to align our names on brands that feel good. You know, whether you're Gen Z, Gen Millennial or Gen X, you want to be with brands that feel good. I would also say what's been really hopeful is I've seen people, even older people, open their minds in the past 18 months. You know, people being like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, the Asian American community had it that bad. In my head, I'm like, hello, it's been an issue forever, you know, or like, I didn't know that about the black community. It's like, hello, it's been happening for 400 years. You know, my head, I, I like we've been knowing, but I'm really proud to see people understanding that and wanting to do the work and read the books, read anti-racism books. And even my father, you know, I'm just talking to him about like trans rights and it's something that he didn't grow up with. He's he's almost 80 years old. He had me late in life. And that to me is really hopeful. And I think the people kind of like what Joe said about big brands who are afraid to move forward. I think that with humanity and with our fellow Americans, if you're not moving forward, you're going to be left in the dust and you're going to be looking dusty. So I'm really proud of number one, Gen Z, but number two, people from different generations understanding what's going on and wanting to be better people. That is giving me hope and makes me excited to do my job every damn day. Yeah, I mean, everything's giving me hope right now, including New York just opening up their vaccinations for people over 30. (laughs) The biggest thing for me is the conversations at the top are different than they've been a year ago. People have diversity, equity, inclusion on the the meeting agenda in every meeting. Brands are talking differently about how they spend their dollars in ways that support communities and in meaningful ways. And it hasn't been just a, like a one-off conversation. It's continuing to evolve and all these topics are gonna continue to evolve. So I think the big thing for me is let's continue to learn and grow together that this isn't something that it's, you know, anyone solved. Um, and people need to continue to educate themselves and learn and grow and have an open mind. Last one. Why do you love this business? Wow, man. Well, when you're in the service business, you know, you got to love this shit. <laughs> because, you know, you know, because the reality is like, 
I claim to be an entrepreneur, but I, I really work for people and I'm in service of others. And you have to have a lot of patience, right? And wait for the opportunities that you get to really bring your full potential to the table. And I think that's kind of the frustration is because you know you could do so much more. And sometimes your potential is, you know, somewhat limited by what your clients allow you to do or, you know, and, and versus what they should be doing. And as a person who likes to define himself as a creative the reward for me or why I love it is because there are those moments where we can bring our full talents to bear to really affect a brand and culture. And when that intersection between, you know, the brand's needs and the consumer needs just fits so well and you can develop some creative solution that really creates that win-win is what really inspires me to want to continue and deal with all the other obstacles that I'm always confronted with uh, in trying to get to those moments of purity. And sometimes those are few and far in between, you know, it's like the 15 minutes of fame. Like, you know, you'll, you'll put in one year to get of work, to get one campaign that has one week's worth of like payoff for you. But like, you just want to make that truly profound. And I think when that happens, when all the stars align, it makes it all worth it. You know, the the frustration is just wanting it to happen more frequently. So I think, you know, it is, I'm a creative at heart. I geek out on this stuff. Uh, I love people. I love humanity. I love the creative process of problem solving. When you do get those moments to really bring your full arsenal to the table to kind of solve a problem that makes an impact, it makes it all worth it for me. I would say, all right, America's been wilding for a minute. It's a crazy place to live. We all know that. Our, um, you know, not American friends love to roast us. But this is also the land of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And we invented the internet and credit cards here. And I love brands. And I really thrive. I just, I, I consume brands. I love them. I eat. I just, you know, it's all, my whole life. And it's an honor for me to be able to, invest and really tell these brands how important multicultural storytelling is and to move the needle with the BIPOC community. So that's why I love this comp- this this industry. It's crazy, but there's so much to be done. There's so much more work to do. And I'm so motivated to really elevate these communities and to really make sure that we're putting multicultural first and foremost. And Joe and I have been doing this forever, but now that the brand, you know, brands and more brands are finally paying attention and listening, I'm really excited to see where this next chapter is post Rona, you know, where we're going to go. So I'm just really motivated by my community, by other communities of color, by the queer community to really, I want to see all my commercials at night be BIPOC and queer people. You know, I want to get to that point. So that is why I love this industry because there's so much work to be done, but I want to do this work and I want to see that needle being moved. That's an awesome response. Haley, you want to try to top that or like... Yeah. Well, it's interesting. (laughs) Why do I love this business? I actually, when I was leaving college, I had a a job offer from the Peace Corps and from Procter & Gamble. And I was talking to my dad about it. He's like, you know, you've always loved helping people. It's like what I get a lot of just satisfaction from. He's like the opportunity if you want to be successful in corporate America is like you're able to impact so many more lives that way. And I would say that's the thing that's kept me going is how do you create better experiences? How do you work with brands and use that power for good and positive change? And again, I feel like we're finally at this point that we're able to 
start to see that that scale tip a little bit into the right direction. And there's so much more work to do. And it just is so energizing to wake up every day and just be like, how can we help more people feel seen? How can we get more of these incredible ads that are coming out there out to the marketplace to the right people? How can we change minds? How can we shape societal opinions? How can we make impacts that will help the environment and the world at large? Like the, the opportunities are endless. And I love a problem. Like I love, love, love problems. And in this industry, we have we spend all of our time every single day trying to solve problems. So it's, I would say those are kind of the two big things about why I love this business. I love this business because I can have conversations with brilliant people like you three with amazing minds. So let's dive into the lightning round a little bit more, Ari, and more about you. And we try to keep this lightning and it usually never happens, but we'll we'll give it a shot. Favorite digital experience? Podcasts. I've definitely been that statistic that has watched or listened to more podcasts since I've been home a lot. I am obsessed with them and uh, I've consumed a ton. My Starbucks iWatch app. Noted. <laughs> I am such an analog person. This is always so hard for me to answer. I'm just going to pass and say real life. I can't, can't All right. compete. Fine. Haley, you'll start this next one. First concert. Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. In sync with Britney Spears opening. Oh, she wasn't even relevant then? She wasn't even relevant then. Wow. I don't even know what that would feel like. I remember leaning over to my friend and said, she can't sing, but she sure can dance. Like a sassy <laughs> middle schooler. Yeah, and accurate. This isn't a proud moment for me, but it was R. Kelly. I was in high school It was and with my high school friends and Escape opened for them. It was the Keep It on the Download Tour. And yeah, you might want to take that out, but it's the truth. I saw R. Kelly. We I didn't know. So cool. We didn't know. No one knew. We did not know. No one knew. Yeah. Joe? Well, I'll go back to my club kid days in the late 80s in New York City when I was like a house dancer and I used to go to clubs all, all, all the time and dance when I was like 15, 16. And I saw Snap perform I Got the Power at one of Peter Gation's clubs wow. at the time. Was with the building, I wouldn't call that a concert venue, it was just a big club before Giuliani came in and literally, you know, destroyed the club scene in New York City. I grew up not going to concerts because I couldn't afford to go to concerts. So I used to go to clubs and see people perform in clubs. So that was my my thing. So I would say snap at the building circa 1987, New York City, when I shouldn't have been out and got in with a fake ID. That's awesome. I feel also like the oldest human ever now. Um, my first concert was Cher. So uh, that's saying a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> Her first, her first of the Old first soul. world tour. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think she's still on her last tour. Pretty epic still. Yeah. Yes. It's pretty embarrassing. All right. Best career advice given or received? All right. Best career advice given was to just be myself. Someone was like, stop, stop trying to like emulate these leaders here. Like what you are actually saying, like the words coming out of your mouth are really smart and are really authentic to you and your point of view. So stop trying to be someone you're not. That was when I was working in a very, very corporate culture that I clearly did not fit in with. I think this industry is full of rejection and failures and it's a long-term gain. And one of my friends, Colette, shout out to Colette, she said to me that rejection is God's protection 
And I have held that with me this whole time because when I started, when I was in the come up in this industry, there's so many of my friends in it. They've all fallen the wayside and I've decided to do something else, which is totally fine. But I think it's it's a long-term game and you have to not give up and you have to keep it moving. When nine doors close, the 10th one opens and you got to just, you know, rejection is God's protection. So keep it moving, keep shooting your shot and you'll get it in. Uh, fall in love with failure. We got to kind of disrupt the concept of failure, right? Fail forward, right? Failure is a learning experience. When you're failing, you're learning, you're doing. There's an ex- equitable exchange when you fail. There's still something tangible to gain from failure, right? So it's a learning experience. Apply those learnings, reoptimize, move on, keep it moving. So uh, fall in love with failure. You know, failure means you're doing shit. Alexis, Joe, Haley, thank you for joining us today. You were brilliant. You've been amazing guests and hopefully we'll have you back really soon. Awesome. An honor to be here. Thank you all. Honestly, I didn't think I'd be like double blessed that I get to talk to both of you again so soon. So this has been a real pleasure. (laughs) Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Human Element. You can find us anywhere. You can find your pods. Give us a like, subscribe, or send us a note. Anyone ever want to talk about culture? You know where to find me. And we'll be back out to you real soon. In the meantime, be well.